What about church? We've been talking about the soul and the system, about our inner world and the world that we are building together. And we've talked about identity and fear and groupism and power and love, but we haven't really talked about church, like this thing that, that we are a part of together, this thing that we're doing at Four Winds Field or Studebaker 112 or some other community that you're a part of somewhere. But what does church have to do with the soul and the system and all the stuff that we're talking about that's like out there, right? Well, uh, to talk about that question, I wanna revisit a plot line that we have looked at before as a church family. And so for some, this might be a bit of review. For others, it'll be brand new. But for all of us, I'm hoping that we can push a little further into what it means in light of everything going on right now with the soul and the system. So let's start in Genesis chapter one, uh, the very beginning of the book. Uh, you might know this is the creation story where we read about God creating the heavens and the earth and uh, sifting and sorting all those raw materials and making something beautiful. We read about human beings being made in the image of God. Uh, this is a story that feels unique and we know it from the Bible, but if we went back in time to the context that it came from, a lot of it wouldn't be very unique. Like a lot of ancient Near Eastern worlds, societies have stories of God creating, but there, there is something unique about Genesis 1 and I think it's the key to unlocking what it means for us today. Because all these stories, they talk about God or the gods creating and there, there's matter and then human beings show up somewhere in the story. But all these other stories, the crowning moment in a creation story is when a temple is built and God or the gods, the deity, then lands in the temple and the deity rests there. Now, if, if you go look in your Bible right now, go find one or look it up online and read Genesis 1, you'll notice that the deity rests, God rests, but the temple is missing. And the consensus of a lot of people who have studied this and wondered about it is that the thing that Genesis 1 is trying to say is that the whole world is a temple, not just part of the world, not just some designated sacred space in some corner of the world, but the whole world is a temple. Every minute of its history, every inch of the planet, the whole cosmos. And if the whole world is a temple, then your whole life is a temple. Every part of the world that you occupy is a temple. Your home is a temple. Your office is a temple. Your neighborhood is a temple. Your city is a temple. And this, this story is saying the whole world is a temple. Now that's really beautiful and profound because it suggests that everywhere we go, we can be on the hunt for the true and the good and the beautiful. It suggests that there's no part of the world that's neutral territory. Uh, it suggests that there's sacred space and maybe desecrated space that's longing for redemption, but there's no such thing as neutral territory in a world where every inch of it is a temple, right? Well, we've, we've talked about that before as a, a church family, but one of the things I wanna observe today is, is where and when that story emerges. The people who had the imagination to say that all of this is sacred space. Well, it's the Israelites. And what's interesting is uh, perhaps a majority of critical scholars these days believe and affirm that Genesis 1, that creation story, that part of the text, was written late in Israel's history, specifically after they had been exiled by the Babylonians. So hang with me for, for a moment here. The Israelite people, uh, face a humiliating defeat when the Babylonian Empire comes in. And then the Babylonians take the Israelites, they rip them out of their homeland, and they drag them away into exile. This is a horrific experience of violence. These people have been dragged into the belly of the beast of the empire. The system around them is powerful and violent and has been used against them. 
and they're there in exile. And somehow that experience gives birth to this dream within them, this imagination, this way of seeing that they decide they want to tell a story about the whole world being a temple, about the whole world being sacred space. And that's striking to me because uh, when I have tasted the ways that the world is violent and uh, the ways that the powers of this world use their power against us, I'll be honest, the first feeling I have isn't, oh man, look at how sacredness is everywhere. Look at how beauty is everywhere. Look at how the whole thing is a temple. Usually it's the other way around and a kind of cynicism breaks into my heart. And yet these Israelites, I mean, they find themselves in the belly of the beast of the empire, having ripped out of their homeland, where the strongest forces around them, the strongest forces working on them are violent forces that are against them. Like the system is profoundly broken and violent and the system is working on them. And yet when they speak from the soul, the story they tell is one of sacred space everywhere. And I wonder how that happened for them. And I wonder how it could happen for us. Uh, because sometimes I've been accused of being too subtle in my preaching, and I don't want to be subtle about this. I'm not telling this story because a long, long time ago in a land far, far away, there was an empire and a system that was violent and that was dividing and conquering the people. I'm telling this story because, of course, we are living in a system right now that has violence in it, in a system right now that is dividing and conquering us. And if the Israelites could, could find a way to hold on to the imagination that sees sacred space everywhere, well, then I wonder if we could too, especially if we figure out how they did it. Now, I have a theory about how it is that these people held on to that vision. And it has to do with a sort of reordering of the chronology of the scriptures. Uh, so, so hang with me on this, right? Like when you read the Bible, you start in Genesis 1 and you go forward, right? But again, the, the consensus among many, if not most scholars today, is that the way that that text was brought together, it's that uh, Genesis 1, that that creation story, is uh, written and added very late in Israel's history. In fact, it's written and added later than the chapter earlier in their history where their, their life was centered on the temple that they built in Jerusalem. So let's talk about the temple for a minute because we started with an observation that the world is a temple, but now let's talk about the temple that they built. Uh, if you and I could go back in time and visit that temple in Jerusalem, we would pass through a couple of pillars that stand up. But the funny thing about these pillars is unlike most pillars, they're not supporting anything. They just go up to open air or the sky. They name them Jachin and Boaz. And the thing about pillars that go up to the sky is that you've got to remember an ancient person imagined that the sky was a kind of dome that was being held up over our heads by some kind of foundational pillars in the earth, like in the mountains perhaps. So you're a person who thinks of the sky being held up by these foundational pillars and then you walk into the temple and you see two pillars holding up the sky. And then you pass by a, a giant metal vat, basically, that has water in it that they call the sea. And then you go inside the temple and you see images of trees everywhere. And you look to the end of the temple where the Holy of Holies is and you see a curtain embroidered with stars on it. And if you're paying attention, it might dawn on you that this temple that we have built, this temple where we worship, this temple where our imaginations are fixed, that this temple is a world, that this temple is a little microcosm 
of the cosmos that we inhabit. So we start in Genesis 1, the world is a temple, but we ask, how could they have that kind of vision, that kind of imagination, when the world they inhabited in Babylon was violence brought against them? Well, maybe it's because earlier in their history, they had had a temple that was a world. They had had a temple that was a, a microcosm, a way of imagining all, all of this fitting together in sacred space. And when you walk into a temple that is a microcosm of the world, it might teach you to see things out there in the world differently than the way they seem. So like a couple of examples, right? Uh, whether it's the Israelites then or you and me now, uh, there are some illusions, some delusions, some things that are, are hidden uh, in the world that we live in every day, unless we have eyes to see. So like one thing, for example, would be all the ways that you and I participate in the entropy and the degradation uh, that's going on around us. That there are decisions we make and compromises that happen and habits that we give ourselves over to and things that we build in the world that are actually degrading the vitality of the world. Sometimes these things war against our souls. Sometimes they, they, they work negatively on the system. But we make these decisions day after day. We make these agreements day after day. And so often, we're blind to the fact that we are participating in something like death, something that is against life, something that is against vitality. Now, there's a word for the decisions that we make and the patterns that we have and the world that we build that is against life, that's against vitality. And the word is sin. And when you go to the temple to confess your sin, what happens? Well, a life is spent. And you see the blood of an animal on the altar which is a visceral reminder of a truth that is often obscured from us when we walk around in the world at large, which is that we make these agreements, these bad decisions, these habits that we give ourselves over to, we build systems that have within them all this degradation and entropy, and they war against life. But then you go to the temple, a little reimagining of the world, and the temple there with the life given in response to these decisions that we make and the blood on the altar is a kind of visceral reminder of what sin is and what it costs, right? Well, there's not just that. There's also this other thing about the temple, which is in spite of the reckoning that happens at the temple, with all the ways that we participate in entropy and death, in spite of that rendering of sacrifice there, something else happens which is that the people know and experience the presence of God, that God, which is life, God who is life, God who radiates being and gives it to the world, that in spite of the fact that at the temple we are reckoning with all of the ways that we have surrendered being and given ourselves over to death, God, who is life and being, is still there, not far away, not so offended by the things that we have done, that God runs away, but God, present in the Holy of Holies, reminding us that at the center, at the center of the center of the universe that we occupy, there is God giving God's self, God's being, God's life to the world. A temple is a place of, of reimagining, uh, not so much fantasies, but learning to use the imagination to see the truth. Well, the plot line of the temple keeps going in scripture. So the world is a temple, but of course, the world looks pretty desecrated in all sorts of ways, right? So the world is a temple, but then the temple is a world. It's a way of reimagining the world, learning how to see God in the world. 
And then we get to Jesus and Jesus gets in trouble because he has the audacity to refer to himself as the temple. There's a few different places in the New Testament where he alludes to or he says directly like, now you're looking at the temple with me. And that might explain why you have the feeling that you have when you see him healing people or teaching people or telling parables. For example, one New Testament scholar, Scott McKnight, uh, he paraphrases Jesus's parables. These are these stories that Jesus tells often about like what the kingdom of God is like. And for Jesus, this kingdom is here now breaking in. And when Scott McKnight paraphrases Jesus's parables, he begins each one of them with this phrase, imagine a world where, dot, dot, dot. Like, like imagine uh, an ultimate reality in which God is like a loving father who scans the horizon looking for the rebel sons and daughters who have decided to turn and come home. And this God runs toward them rather than shutting the door on them. Imagine a world where goodness and benevolence is so overflowing that the servants who show up first thing in the morning get paid the same as the servants who show up late at night because this God, this master, this leader has no need to adjudicate between who is worthy and who is not. He just gives to everyone. Imagine a world where this God lets the, the rain fall to, to raise up the crops and to feed the world on both the good and the evil. Imagine this indiscriminate love which is fueling this world, like imagine that's the way that things actually are because for Jesus and in the temple and in the world that is a temple, maybe that is the way things actually are. We're just having a hard time seeing it. Well, there's uh, the temple they build and then the temple of Jesus. And then there's one other move in scripture, which is that you and I together call the church that we are now being built together into a temple. And I think this is really important because there's lots of questions about like, why church? Or like, what is church? Or like, what's supposed to happen when we are together? Why does it feel like there's something at stake in this idea of church? And I would argue it's, it's because church is a temple too. Church is a place where we be, are being taught to see things that are hard to see. And uh, where an imagination is being incubated within us to help us create a different kind of world. Now, when I talk about imagination, I said it before, like it can feel like a flight of fancy. Like the imagination is the thing that you use to see things that aren't true. But that's not what I'm talking about here. Really what I mean is the imagination is even more powerful when we use it to see things that are true, but that are really hard to see. Let me tell you a really dumb example of this. Uh, a while ago, the church I worked at, our offices for the department that I was in, right next to them, we had a couple of single person bathrooms which you know, that's like the gold standard in the office, right? If you can find yourself like an actual single person bathroom, little privacy, tucked away corner of the building, right? That's a useful thing to have. So I would be in there and, you know, taking advantage of the bathroom. And then one day what happened is uh, we, we made the switch from mechanical switches to turn lights on and off to sensors so that lights wouldn't stay on when people weren't in the room. But the timing wasn't quite right on the sensor and if it didn't detect motion within a certain few seconds, it would turn the lights off. And of course, the problem is I'm a guy and I'd be in there doing what guys do in the bathroom, standing up, needing to see like where I'm aiming and the light would turn off. And you can't like dance or wiggle around when that happens because you're gonna have a mess, right? So what do I do in those moments? I try to recall in my mind, using my imagination, a visualization of the truth that I had just seen right in front of my eyes that was suddenly obscured by the darkness, right? This is a very dumb joke, but it's also completely true. And it's a little example of the fact that these imaginations that we have are in fact powerful tools 
for interacting with reality when reality is obscured from us. And I think right now in the system that you and I inhabit, I think the reality of God and the reality of the world that God is inviting us to build with God, I think all of that is obscured pretty badly by the system that we are inhabiting right now. We are inhabiting a system that is breeding fear and division. We are inhabiting a system where the worst impulses of hate and bigotry are being leveraged. We are inhabiting a system where groups are being formed and fortified so that we can be divided and conquered. And in a system like that, when you live in it every day, the soul can have a harder and harder time holding on to the truth and the hopefulness of that truth. And we need temples. We need spaces where a reimagining of the world is happening in real time, where God with us is helping us imagine a different kind of world. And I'm telling you, church is meant to be that kind of thing. There's a theologian named Stanley Hauerwas who famously wrote and said, the church is God's imagination for the world. And I have been learning about that firsthand in actual experience over the last few years. That, that, that what happens when we come together as the church can fuel the imagination for different possibilities. Uh, there's a lot about this strange community that we are a part of here in South Bend and with uh, far-flung friends who are part of us uh, through online. Uh, I, I've learned some things about this strange community that has come together. And frankly, in so many ways, it has shamed me because of the cynicism that it has had to defeat in me as we've grown up into who we are right now. I mean, um, some people will tell you the best way to build a church big and fast is to target like one kind of person and try to build a whole church out of one kind of person. And then you end up with uh, a room full of people who look the same and come from the same kinds of experiences. And that can be really easy and it can get really big and grow really fast. We had a sense early on with, with SBCC that uh, that that's not what we're called to, that it falls short somehow. That we would have to do some of the, the actual work of diversity, of raising up different kinds of voices and calling one another to love people from different kinds of experiences and, and building the whole thing out of this strange, diverse fabric of the people of South Bend and elsewhere, rather than sort of singling out one narrow bandwidth of position and experience in the world. And I got to tell you, it is harder. It's harder and there are days when it feels like it may not work. And then we show up together for a gathering or I hear a story from a member of this community and discover not only can it happen, but it's almost like it wants to happen. Like the world is pregnant with these possibilities of actually belonging to one another, of God inviting us to actually belong to each other across all these lines of difference. And I don't know about you, but right now, like, I need help imagining and remembering that that kind of world is possible. I, uh, I uh, have one vision in particular of how it is when we gather that I, I see a different kind of world possible, and it's what happens when we practice the Eucharist. And so if you've been with us together in Studebaker 112, or even I'm recording this on a Sunday afternoon after we just gathered at Four Winds Field where we had a Eucharist there, um, well, back to 112 in Studebaker, when we do it there, we'll put court tables in the corners of the gathering area and a bunch of people will get up in line to come forward and receive. 
and I'll sit, I'll kind of tuck away in the corner so that I'm sort of looking over the shoulder of a person who is serving the Eucharist to a line full of people so that I'm also sort of looking in the eye of the people who are coming forward to receive communion. And the funny thing is I know enough about the people in our church. I know the stories, the backgrounds, the experiences, the worldviews, the perspectives, the questions that people are asking that I, I can see the people online standing there together to receive together and just reflect on and wonder at the idea that these different kinds of people are all finding belonging together at this shared meal, knowing that there aren't many other places where that would happen. Because we tend to self-select toward homogenous communities where we share a worldview and we share most of the same experiences and we agree on most things. And then the Eucharist happens in the church. And as a church who says that this table is for anyone who wants to be at the table with Jesus, I don't even care what you believe. If you wanna be at the table with Jesus, you are welcome at this table. And to see this rampant, unexpected, universal kind of belonging happening where the thing that binds us together isn't that we agree on everything. It's not that we vote the same way. It's not that we have the same experiences or the same education or the same opinions. The thing that binds us together is that we open up an empty hand and that the goodness of God meets us in that empty hand and fills us up. That we are bound um, as recipients of a common generosity from God that is available to every single person in history and on this planet right now. Well, that's a different kind of belonging that could create a different kind of world. I suspect this is why when the church has been at her best, and she's not always at her best, but when the church has been at her best, and I mean like the capital C church around the world and in history, when the church has been at her best, she has been an incubator for a different kind of system in the world that we have right now. Like just go through history and look for the radical movements of social change and progress that have been birthed in the church. And again, I'm not saying the church has a patent on this, and I'm not saying the church always does this, but if you read history honestly with your eyes wide open, you would have a hard time not noticing how often the church at her best as a midwife birthing these movements of social change where the system gets a little bit better, where soul and system are a little more harmonized, where the pieces get put back together. Like the, the church is good at birthing that kind of thing when we do it well. And how we do it well is often we come back to a table of mutual belonging. And we say nobody earns their right here more than anybody else. Uh, that this altar where we meet Christ and one another is wide open. And if God would give God's self to us at a table that's wide open for everyone, then surely we can take that vision, that hope, that power, that promise, that sense of love and carry it with us back into the system that we inhabit and do our little part every day to push that system toward greater belovedness and belonging. This is the strange season to preach about church uh, especially when I lean on what happens when we are together. And for South Bend City Church, of course, we're entering into a season with the weather turning colder and it being um, not very easy to be together outside and with COVID spiking in St. Joe County and us not choosing to be back together in Studebaker 112 right now for that reason. It's a strange uh, moment to be talking about this, but I also think it's a really, really important moment to talk about this. Um, Friends, I will just tell you, I'm, I've not given up on the world. Uh, I don't know if you have. But one of the reasons I'm not giving up on the world is because I'm not giving up on the church. And the reason I'm not giving up on the church is because I have seen again and again and again how she can be a temple. 
And that in that sacred space, uh, my own imagination can be cultivated and calibrated for the world that we are building at large. And I've seen it happen for so many others, and we're gonna keep looking for it. So today, friends, uh, may you remember that the world is a temple, that every inch of the universe, every moment of history, that every part of your life, every room you walk into, it's all sacred ground. And when you look out upon the world, whether it's your personal circumstance or the headlines or anything in between, when you look out on the world and when you see desecration instead of sacred ground, may you, may you sense the sacred hum of the God who is still giving God's love and life to the world, offering to redeem it. And may we find uh, more and more ways to be the church and to be together and to imagine together. And may we know that you and me, we together are being built together into a temple so that through this temple being built, our imaginations can be revived so that we can keep building the world. And may grace and peace be with you.